Welcome to the Conversation Weekly. I'm Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto. And I am Dan Marino in San Francisco. So Dan, what did the pandemic do to your social life? Well, for me, it wasn't too bad. I played a lot of online video games with my friends. I did a lot of Zoom calls. Um, I read a lot. But I also lost a lot of the social interactions I have with my friends, cooking dinners, doing activities, giving my buddy a hug. Um, There was a lot that the pandemic obviously took away from my social life, too. What about you, Nahal? For me, the pandemic was the most I'd been socially isolated in my life. My friend group doesn't play video games, and we were able to maintain contact, but it wasn't the same as spending time with people. But something that helped me get through it was knowing that we were kind of all in this alone together. Right. There was a little bit of the I don't see anyone, but I know we're all suffering together camaraderie. I don't know. Some sort of trauma bonding definitely there. I mean, there was no FOMO. Nothing else was going on. (laughs) That's very true. And what about when things ended? How did you do then, Nahal? So it became nice to go out again and, and spend time with people. But I'd become curious about loneliness and wondered how other people got through it. Of course, right? Like people were lonely before the pandemic Loneliness has, I imagine, been a part of the human condition for as long as humans have been around. So uh, I'm interested to hear, Nahal, you started digging into loneliness. What did you find? So I wanted to find out a little bit about loneliness. And what I found surprising was that loneliness has an actual physiological impact on our bodies, like loneliness can make us sick. The other thing that I found was that we treat loneliness as an individual problem, but there's really structural causes for it. And so to deal with loneliness at the individual level, we have to respond to it at the population level. The first researcher I spoke to is a historian of emotions who could tell me a little bit about the history of loneliness. My name is Dr. Ananya Chakravarti. I'm an associate professor of history at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., Ananya researches early modern South Asia, and she's currently working on a book on the global history of emotions. As part of her research, she looks at how expressions of loneliness have changed over time. When you're thinking about emotions historically, especially because as a historian, I think not only are emotions socially conditioned, but they change over time. The English historian Faye-bound Alberti shows that you don't really even see the word loneliness or oneliness show up till the 19th century in English literature. So she began looking at solitude as a form of loneliness practiced in religion. And one of the things I think about is the fact that the period that I study, primarily the 16th and 17th century, there were many domains of human activity that were premised on solitude. So ascetic religion or monastic seclusion. But she says solitude is different to loneliness in that it's part of religious practice these almost ritualized domains of solitude were valued and highly valued in many of these societies. Loneliness is, of course, very different. So it's a modern phenomenon. And I do think that it's predicated on certain kinds of social and economic arrangements, really. So the fact that we're witnessing this explosion of loneliness has a lot to do with the ways in which we live today. 
she became more aware of just how widespread loneliness was when she saw the news of the UK government appointing a new minister of loneliness. I think what surprised me, I mean, living in the West, we're more aware of the kind of epidemic of loneliness that's unfolding here. What surprised me was the fact that there was a minister appointed in the UK to tackle the issue. That was a sort of really watershed moment of bringing to public salience just what a major challenge this has become epidemiologically speaking. The post was dedicated to addressing loneliness as a healthcare challenge after the findings of a report that showed that one in 20 adults living in the United Kingdom report feeling alone either often or always. The role of the minister is to make the issue a parliamentary priority and press members of parliament to find long-term political solutions to loneliness. But it's not just in the UK that loneliness has been on the rise. As soon as I started digging into it, I was shocked, really, at the rates of loneliness that you're beginning to experience in places like India. And then the experience of the pandemic was such an extreme experience of loneliness, I think, for so many of us, and particularly for the elderly. I think it was such a profoundly lonely time that I think that was really what kind of drew me to it and what kind of spurred me to think about this. So to understand just how recent or old of an issue this is, she started by looking at how loneliness might have been expressed differently historically. Loneliness is complex, right? If you think about it, it's not a simple one-dimensional kind of feeling. It can have shades. And sometimes in those shades, I think, is where you find cultural specificity of what makes loneliness in one cultural register different from loneliness another or how it might be experienced or expressed. It might have the same sort of psychobiological markers as an experience, but the way that comes out emotionally and socially is going to be different. So loneliness, I think, is a complex set of emotions. And some of the strands within it might have longer antecedents. Like I said, the sense of being separated from other people. And that's when Ananya began studying religious Hindu poetry. One of the things that I was interested in is this idea of separation. And separation, at least in India, has a long and quite complex set of not just thought, but cultural production around it. At least in the context of bhakti poetry, which is this devotional movement. Bhakti in Hinduism was a popular spiritual movement that emerged in South India in the 6th century. Those who practiced or were part of the movement celebrated devotion, intense emotional attachment and love to specific Hindu gods through stories, songs, and poetry. It has its roots in Tamil sacred poetry, but then becomes really a widespread phenomenon starting in the 10th century. And by the 15th century, it's really spread throughout South Asia. And it's a very powerful devotional movement because it it allows the devotee to bypass the strictures of organized religion and establish a direct relationship with God. She says central to bhakti poetry was the need to isolate oneself from the world, and the separation, although painful, was understood as necessary. If you read the poetry, it's often expressing a deep and acute pain. And of course, it's within that moment of really that sense of being separated from the beloved that actually the world opens up spiritually for the devotee. So it's an interesting kind of experience, that sense of torment caused through separation. But Ananya says that there is a difference between the feeling bhakti poets expressed back then, which is more about needing to feel alone and reach out to the deities, and today's more modern experience of loneliness. 
But then if you look at the ways in which modern poets in Maharashtra have expressed the loneliness of social stigma of especially of caste, right? The question is, are these lines that you can continue through? And I would suggest not, especially because the poets themselves would reject that tradition and would say that, no, what we're describing, we're moderns, we're products of this modern capitalist society. And yes, caste discrimination is old, but it's modern expression is new. And we're reacting to that. Ananya says that studying and comparing the type of loneliness expressed in bhakti poetry can help put contemporary loneliness into context. Kind of this paradox that I was thinking about, like we we seem to live in this highly globalized world. There's so many more ways to be connected. There's so much, travel is so much easier. You have social media. And yet actual experiences of loneliness is probably very much on the rise. If you look at the cultural production around loneliness as a very modern phenomenon. So there's that. Although loneliness as a feeling isn't new, it's the way we experience and view loneliness today that makes it a modern phenomenon. Do I think people felt lonely in the sense of an acute and painful awareness of being alone prior to the modern era? Sure. I'm sure there was some version of it that people felt, but this kind of understood domain of emotion is probably a fairly modern phenomenon tied to how we live. And there are real and physical consequences to this modern form of loneliness that can affect not just our mental health, but our bodies too. I think if the pandemic taught us anything, that it has deep, not just, you know, sort of consequences for the individual, the health effects, the morbidity and mortality effects of loneliness, I think at this point are really shocking, which of course, from a public health perspective is a real concern, right? I mean, if you're suddenly having people having real stress-related health conditions, then how do you provide for a huge number of people who are going to be experiencing this? And she says it can have societal impacts too. It also can have consequences. I mean, a lot of the kind of discussions around, say, radicalization, for example, and the ways in which people have gone looking for community online in moments of deep loneliness and have then found themselves in these conspiracy theory echo chambers, for example, I think that could be seen as a consequence of loneliness and of the kinds of individuals attempting to find a remedy for what is really a social phenomenon and should be addressed as such, right? Like with a lot of different things, we put the onus on the individual to solve their problem of loneliness. And we say, oh, you know, get out there, do this, do that. So while loneliness is experienced on the individual level, it happens because of larger challenges. What are the structural conditions that are creating this problem where so many people are lonely, right? It's all very well to say, oh, get a hobby or go hang out with people. If you're working two jobs, how do you do that? And especially if your job is designed to keep you isolated, if you're, say, working on a factory floor, there are rules around don't smile at other people, which we've seen has happened, (laughs) or don't talk to other people, right? So if most of your workday is spent in social isolation, then you come home, and then what? (laughs) So if we don't address it or think about this as a social problem as a social challenge, as opposed to an individual affliction, I think we're going to not be able to address it. So I found this to be an interesting point, this religious aspect of loneliness. I'd never really thought about it. But on the one hand, it seems like there was a good side to being alone. 
you're communing with nature or God or spirits or the self or whatever. And then somewhere that switched and you were lonely because you weren't connected to a God. I never thought about it that way, but it's an interesting quirk of the history of being alone. Yeah, there's there's definitely a history of solitude. Like you have monks and nuns going off into cloisters. You have Sophie dervishes going into the desert to be alone and spend mm-hmm. time with themselves and try to get closer to God. And in modern times, you have things like artist retreats where you go off to be alone and think and create work. Um, so there's definitely this this pursuit of alone time. But that's that's a particular kind of isolation. It's a deliberate chosen isolation to better oneself for religious, spiritual, or creative purpose. I totally get that. Like I'm not much of an artist, but I find a similar level of spiritual fulfillment from doing outdoor activities. I'm a big surfer, I'm a big snowboarder, and I'll go hike up some mountain somewhere. I'll go surfing alone at sunset. And I've always felt those to be quasi-religious experiences. Yeah. And what I want to point attention to here is that there is a difference between wanting to be alone and feeling lonely. What is that difference? What makes someone feel lonely if it's not just physical isolation, the state of being alone? It's social isolation. And that's when you're missing or lacking social connections. The pandemic affected the ways in which we connected to other people. But even social isolation doesn't always lead to loneliness. So I spoke to someone who could explain the relationship between the two. Social isolation and loneliness are interrelated, but distinct concepts and experiences. And we use these terms often interchangeably because they can often co-occur, but they are distinct. This is Julianne Holt-Lundstad, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah in the United States. Easiest way to distinguish between them is really the degree of objectivity and subjectivity. So social isolation is thought to be more objective. It's either objectively being alone or infrequent social contact or few social contacts, whereas loneliness is more of the subjective and distressing feeling that results from the discrepancy between one's actual level of connection and one's desired level of connection. She says although being physically alone can impact us, it doesn't always result in a sustained feeling of loneliness. And of course, objectively being alone increases the likelihood that you will feel alone, but those don't always co-occur. And so we can be objectively isolated, but not feel lonely. We might actually enjoy our solitude. And conversely, we can be lonely, but not isolated. So we might be surrounded by other people and yet still feel profoundly lonely. Historically, humans have avoided being alone to ensure their survival. At a very high level, throughout human history, humans have relied on others for survival, whether it's protection from threats of safety to just efficiency of effort. (laughs) Um, And being outside of the group can potentially threaten one's survival. And so One of our most basic drives is identifying what is safe and what is a threat, right? And so being alone can activate these kinds of responses in our brain and ultimately our body that are associated with threat response. And so as we're more hypervigilant to threats in our environment, as well as having to, in essence, handle every challenge in our life on our own, (laughs) our brains have to be more active. 
And so this requires more metabolic resources. And this can have real impacts on our health. When there's this threat, it's similar to somewhat of a stress response where we can see it signals the sympathetic nervous system, including the release of norepinephrine that can ultimately signal other areas of the body, including inflammatory responses, which if sustained over time, we know that chronic inflammation has been linked to increasing risk for a number of chronic health conditions, um, including physical health conditions like cardiovascular disease, to mental health conditions like depression and cognitive health conditions such as dementia. And so that's just one example of how it is that this feeling, if sustained over time, can put this wear and tear on our body that can ultimately influence our long-term health and ultimately risk for premature mortality. That's why some scholars think that the feeling of loneliness may have evolved to help survive and it's an unpleasant feeling so that we could try to avoid it, kind of like hunger. One of the things to keep in mind is that this is part of the human experience, right? We all spend moments alone and probably would crave some alone time if we never got to be alone. <laughs> and we all experience loneliness from time to time. In fact, many scientists have argued particularly from a neuroscience perspective, that loneliness is a biological cue similar to hunger and thirst, that in essence, we crave human contact um, because it's adaptive. And just like hunger motivates us to seek out food, which is important for survival, loneliness motivates us to seek out social connection, which is also important for survival. And so from that standpoint, it's as human as feeling hungry, right? And so loneliness is something we all experience from time to time. When we're unable to address our loneliness, it affects our health negatively. So I think it's really important to recognize that there's a distinction between these transient types of feelings that are quite adaptive to even it's okay to be alone from time to time, but when it becomes more chronic and it becomes persistent over time, that is when we start to see some of the negative effects, particularly in the area of research that I'm involved in is in terms of health outcomes. And so how it impacts our bodies that ultimately can increase our risk for chronic illness and even earlier death. From when you started doing this research, what changes or what trends have you seen? Over the past couple of decades, People have started tracking various trends like increasing rates of living alone, decreasing participation in religion or faith-based organizations, the shift in how we interact with people via technology and other remote means, and our increasing aging population. And so these kinds of societal trends really start to raise some concerns about, are we becoming less connected as a society? And so by these metrics, we can see how not only do we have evidence of the serious kinds of consequences that are associated with this, but we see trends in terms that suggest that it may be increasing in urgency, but also some prevalence rates that suggest a significant portion of the population may be affected in some way. Julianne says there are ways to address this, but it's not necessarily just about spending less time alone. 
So certainly, if we want to be more socially connected, having actual physical access to other people is a foundational element. But even then, you can be surrounded by people and still feel lonely. Julianne says it's the quality of the relationships you have that's important. It may not be sufficient. (laughs) Why I say it may not be sufficient is that, as I alluded to earlier, not all interactions, not all relationships are entirely positive. And so we do need to be careful and conscientious about the quality of relationships. Because if we just simply are like, let's just bring people together without any kind of care for that, we could potentially have some unintended negative consequences. We could increase conflict and strain. And so not all interactions or relationships are equal. So we do need to really foster high quality kinds of interactions and connections. And in fact, in the scientific work, we have broken down some of the areas that have been linked to better kinds of outcomes. And as I mentioned, the frequency of interactions, the size of people's networks, those lay the foundation of, in essence, the structure of our social connections. We also need different types of relationships, romantic, platonic, professional. Think about a coworker you enjoy working with, or that special person who you choose to spend time with or childhood friends. All of these different types of relationships allow us to meet different needs for comfort, intimacy, trust. So different kinds of relationships can fulfill different kinds of needs and goals. What we get from our mother might differ from what we get from our coworkers or our girlfriend. And so different kinds of relationships, you know, fulfill these different kinds of needs. And so having a diversity of relationships can be really important to fulfill these different kinds of needs. And there's a good body of evidence around just social support and the idea that these different kinds of relationships can be sources of support in times of need, whether that be emotional support or information or even actual providing resources like a ride to the airport. But loneliness is difficult to address medically because how can you tell people how to live their lives? And it's not always so easy to get people in the medical community to view it as an issue that can be treated by healthcare professionals. I've certainly experienced some resistance along the way. And in particular, I've noticed some resistance from the medical community. And in some respect, it's not so much that the evidence is called into question, but more concerns about whether it's the role of the medical community to be involved in personal matters and um, whether this should become medicalized. And then the other potential pushback I've seen when it comes to public health prioritization is that there are many really important issues. You know, why should we be focused on this? The impact of loneliness on our health is measurable. The American Heart Association, among others, issued a statement looking at its impacts. They found that social isolation and loneliness can create a 29% increased risk for heart attack and a 32% increased risk for stroke. So from the medical community, 
we do have good evidence of the medical kinds of relevance, including a National Academy's report on the medical and health relevance, as well as a recent statement published by the American Heart Association, among others. And so we, we have good evidence of the health consequences of this. And so it is a medical issue. And there is quite a bit that physicians and other healthcare professionals can do. And that we just need the resources and training for medical professionals. But this should not be seen as something that distracts from patient care, but rather is an integrated part of patient care. Julianne says so far, many interventions addressing loneliness have focused too much on the individual experiencing it and less on seeing people as part of a social fabric. What we have seen is that most of the focus in terms of programs and interventions to help reduce isolation and loneliness or reduce risk for isolation and loneliness have occurred at the individual level. So what I mean by this are strategies that individuals can either take self-directed, things like mindfulness-based approaches or doing some kind of joining a group or whatnot, to other kinds of approaches or programs where it might involve volunteers or trained professionals to reduce isolation and loneliness. But loneliness isn't necessarily the result of an individual's choices or actions. One of the things we need to recognize is that in some cases, isolation and loneliness may stem from personal issues, but not always. And in many cases may be related to factors that are outside the individual or outside the individual's control. So the characteristics of our communities, including the safety and walkability of neighborhoods, can influence the extent to which people are able to engage with their communities. But we also need to think about the institutions within our society and the policies and practices that also can influence the extent to which people are connecting socially. And this includes not only the structures and policies and practices that could potentially help, but also thinking about how these might be barriers. And so if we can look at broad levels and see where barriers exist, if we can simply even identify and address some of these barriers, that those could make substantial improvements in not only individuals' lives, but at broader community level and societal level impacts. Julianne also echoed something Ananya had told me, that beyond the health impact, there's a feedback loop to loneliness, which can reinforce our sense of isolation. Not only is there vulnerability in terms of being alone, but there's vulnerability in terms of others that are not trusted. And this unfortunately has led to a very common kind of us versus them mentality, where people are isolating themselves within their groups of like-minded people and viewing and distrusting those that are outside their group or different from them. And unfortunately, it has some of these negative consequences. She says that by connecting people to communities, we encountered those who are different from us, but we're still able to find commonalities with them. We have often common goals with other groups. 
And we need to start being able to work with other groups. And there can be advantages to interacting with people who are different from us. We have evidence that gaining different perspectives leads to better decision making, that leads to novel developments. So it's a personal benefit. It's a societal benefit when we can interact with people who are different from us. So I found this really interesting, Dan, that loneliness could be contributing to the mistrust and social polarization that we're seeing. That makes a lot of sense. And it was cool to hear this kind of loneliness lens on it because uh, I don't know if people are familiar with the term incel. It stands for involuntary celibate. And it's kind of this internet social group thing where you've just got like young men who are very lonely and they're not having success with their desired partner. and you kind of get these echo chambers and they get into these worlds and they're finding each other online. And it's this kind of sad and dark story, but whether it's one of these online kind of more extreme leaning social groups or just everyday people, I guess the question is how do you treat loneliness, right? You can't just take a drug and be unlonely. Sure. You might be able to get on some mood stabilizers, but I don't think that's really getting at the root of the problem. So this is where a lot of the tension is. How do you tell someone to go out and connect with people as a medical response to their health challenges? And as a doctor, should you even be doing that? Something that I learned was that addressing loneliness is also about creating opportunities and spaces for people to get together. Things like cultural events or programming at community centers. And there are people who are trying to figure out the challenges of social isolation. Somebody who's doing that is Kate Mulligan, a health geographer in Toronto, Canada. She's an advocate for a care approach called social prescribing. My name is Kate Mulligan. I am the Senior Director for the Canadian Institute for Social Prescribing, and I'm also an Assistant Professor in the Zalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. What is social prescribing? Social prescribing is a way to use healthcare visits to reconnect people with non-clinical supports, community supports that improve their health and well-being. For example, a person who keeps going to the doctor because they're lonely and they don't have another clinical need, uh, or maybe in addition to a clinical need that they have, can be instead referred to a community connector, somebody who has time to sit and listen and help the person shift their focus from what's the matter with me to what matters to me. Maybe it's a referral to a gardening group or an arts group. Maybe it's referral to help with housing or financial supports. But they are referred to something that helps them demedicalize those social conditions. So they're not going to healthcare for things that are better addressed in other ways. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of social prescribing and how it came about? Human beings have been caring for one another for millennia. So in that sense, social prescribing is not a new idea. We have always had community supports and services available, either formally or informally. So it started properly in the UK over the last 20 years, but very formally in the last 10 years, where we saw significant government investment in social prescribing for the first time. So they now have what they call link workers, those community connectors or well-being coordinators in every primary care network across England, for example. And it's growing in Scotland and Wales and Ireland as well. And now it's starting to grow around the world. Today, social prescribing is being practiced in more than 20 countries around the world. There's even a global prescribing alliance, which brings together researchers and practitioners to share information and advice. 
Social prescribing as a treatment involves a range of practices, and it can be used to help address various health challenges, like referring someone to a gym for physical activity or suggesting time spent in nature as an antidepressant. But the most important aspect is focusing on connecting people to others in their community. Oftentimes in health and in social services, there has been a real focus on the material determinants of health. For example, we need to help a person get housing. We need to help a person gain better access to income because these are, we know, vital determinants of health. And sometimes we think that those have to come first before we can think about something that might seem a little bit less material or less urgent, like social connection. But it turns out that sometimes social connection is really necessary to build trust and to build that sense of community and belonging before we're ready to engage in any kind of supported work for some of our more material determinants of health or some of our more clinical health needs. She says the work of those in harm reduction communities people working with others who suffer from drug and substance abuse, is showing that social prescribing can have real positive impacts on people's lives. So harm reduction communities have led by example and shown that peer workers work to create that welcoming environment in a way that is meaningful for people who use drugs and build those trusted relationships so that we can continue the conversation and work toward helping address other social and clinical health needs. During the pandemic, community organizers worked hard to check in with isolated community members, especially the elderly and those from marginalized groups. Health care and public health organizations finally recognized the special and very important role that community organizations play in health. We were able to see community ambassadors build trust in communities that have reasons to mistrust big institutions like healthcare. So racialized communities who have had negative experiences of discrimination and oppression in healthcare to build trust at that local level and build understanding to create a bridge to health services like vaccination, for example, or testing for respiratory viruses. So these are the kinds of things that we need to lean into more and provide the proper resources to. I think many have known that these are important services, but they don't get sustained and regular funding. And social prescribing helps us to show the value of this trust building work and this community building work and this work around belonging so that we can show this is actually propping up the health system. And if we took it away, we would notice. We would notice the lack of caregiver support and labor. We would notice the lack of peer supports and community engagement. So we need to really provide the resources that keep that leadership going. And social prescribing evaluation helps us to tell that story in an empirical way. Do you think that social prescribing is the magic pill for social isolation? No, (laughs) I don't. It has to happen in the context of broader interventions. There's no question. It's not a big P policy intervention. It does not address all things related to, for example, polarization or the lack of government investment in some of the services that we need, that lack of government investment in community services and in health equity or in preventive health care. So it doesn't necessarily do those things on its own. But it does make a difference in the lives of people and communities. It helps us to tell the story of where these services are helping and where they're needed and where that investment is required. It should be part of a broader strategy of helping to move our thinking and our work at least a few steps upstream 
So we're not waiting for disasters to strike at the community level or in our individual health. We're not waiting until we're desperate for medication to help us cope with our lives. We want to prevent illness and ill health and feelings of ill-being. And we want to do that in a way that just makes us feel that we are contributors to our communities, we belong, and we have something to offer. That's it for this episode. Thank you to the academics we featured this week, Ananya Chakravarti, Julianne Holt-Lundstad, and Kate Mulligan. And thanks to Jeremy Holloway, who I also spoke to for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. And if you like what we do, please support the show and the conversation organization more broadly. Just go to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced and written by myself, Mihal Al-Hadi, and Men Marwani. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sarl. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. Men Marwani is also the show's executive producer. And I'm Dan Reno. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>